Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 46. Last week, I wrapped up with Pharaoh Taharqa of the 25th Dynasty, which puts us in the year 664 BC. And that leaves me with one more Pharaoh of that dynasty to cover, Taharqa's nephew, Tatamoni. So let's get started. As a refresher, in this period, and during the 25th Dynasty, Egypt was ruled by Nubians, the people they had previously suppressed. This kingdom, sometimes called the Kingdom of Cush, was ruled from the Upper Nile region, so the southern portion of the country. Today, the area is not even in Egypt, but is in the northern portion of the country of Sudan. According to Assyrian records, Tatamoni was the son of King Shabaka, who was his predecessor's either brother or cousin. With the potential of the prefix half needed before one of those, other sources list him as being the son of Shabaiku, who was the ruler before Shabaka. If you'll remember back to the last episode, the Assyrians had just captured the northern portion of Egypt, gaining territory as far south as Thebes. Upon doing so, they appointed Nico I as their governor of the region, and then went home. Not long after the departure of their military, Tatamoni sent his own army down the Nile from Nubia and reoccupied all of Egypt. Nico was killed during the campaign. More on Nico in a bit. Overall, it wasn't going to be that easy for the Egyptians. Word traveled fast, at least by their standards, and soon the Assyrians returned to Egypt with a superior army. And, in quick time, they defeated Tatamani's army in the delta and advanced as far south as Thebes, again, which they sacked, again. Thebes, which had been the capital of Egypt for centuries, never recovered from the brutal fighting. The looting Assyrians carted off huge amounts of spoils, including two enormous obelisks, each weighing almost 38 tons. The defeat was recorded in Assyrian records, but, and not terribly surprising, Egyptian records make no mention of it. Remember when I covered the Exodus, and how it shouldn't be surprising that there's no Egyptian record of it, because they tended to not document negative events? Yet another example. With the capture of Thebes, the Assyrians effectively ended Nubian control over Egypt. But to be clear, Tatamani still controlled a portion of Upper Egypt for a short while, at least until 656 BC, when Samtik I, a ruler from the 26th dynasty, sent his navy up the Nile. More on this, too, in a minute. From this point forward, Tatamani would control only Nubia. He would die three years later, leaving the throne to Atlanarsa, a son of Taharqa. And with Tatamani's defeat and death, so ended the 25th dynasty. Which, quite naturally, gets me to the 26th dynasty and forces me to back up about 16 years to 672 BC, when Nico took the throne and ruled as an Assyrian vassal over the northern portion of the country, ruling from the city of Sais, a city in the western Nile Delta. But he governed a portion of this region even before the Assyrians invaded. It's speculated that he may have been related to the rulers from the 24th dynasty, 
the short-lived pair of kings that governed the region about 50 years earlier. When the Assyrians did come in 672 BC, he quickly ceded authority to the Assyrian ruler, Esarhaddon, and the Assyrians rewarded him by allowing him to stay in power. They were so pleased that they even expanded the territory he governed, maybe giving him territory all the way to Memphis. Like I covered a minute ago, in 669 BC, the 25th dynasty ruler Taharqa sent troops south to regain territory previously lost to the Assyrians. Nico immediately requested assistance from the Assyrians, but without warning, their leader Esarhaddon died. This led to a political crisis in the Assyrian Empire, but eventually his son, Ashurbanipal, would assume the throne. I'll cover this in much greater detail when I get to the Assyrians. Ashurbanipal beat a hasty path back to Egypt just as 667 was turning into 666 BC. The superior Assyrians defeated the troops of the 25th dynasty and drove them back to Thebes. And then it got a bit more interesting. Ashurbanipal discovered that a few of the local lower Egyptian leaders were plotting against him. His troops captured Nico and his fellow co-conspirators, then killed a portion of the populace in the cities they controlled, taking many others as prisoner. These prisoners were sent to Nineveh. Then, for reasons that remain unclear, and surprised even his contemporaries, Ashurbanipal pardoned Nico. He was reinstalled as the leader of the territory governed from the city of Sais. He even made Nico's son, Samtik, the mayor of Antharibis, which was located in the delta, near the modern city of Benha. So, why did the Assyrian leader do this? The most plausible theory is that Ashurbanipal knew he needed the political support of a local leader in order to maintain control, to be able to govern from afar. He may have even speculated that the 25th dynasty would not have given up on their desires for control of Lower Egypt. The Assyrians were no dummies at maintaining control of a large empire. And soon enough, after the departure of the Assyrian military, Taharqa's successor, Tatamani, came calling. In the battle, like I covered towards the beginning of this episode, Nico was killed. His son, Samtik, fled to the Assyrian city of Nineveh, out of the reach of the Nubians. He didn't have to stay long, though, as the Assyrians soon beat the Nubians back past Thebes. And with northern Egypt back in Assyrian hands, Samtik was installed as the vassal governor essentially as his father's successor. Samtik would officially take the throne, if that's what you call it when a vassal begins his rule. Anyway, he would be the top regional dog in 664 BC and would control a territory close to the size of the former empire. And with his installation, so began the 26th dynasty. About nine years later, he would lead a bloodless takeover of Upper Egypt, it was then that he dispatched his navy up the Nile to Thebes. When they arrived, he essentially convinced the reigning god's wife of Amun at Thebes to adopt his daughter Nicaris as her heiress, essentially installing her as the crowned princess to the priesthood. And this deft political-slash-religious move 
made the Thebans subservient to him. With this, he outmaneuvered the Nubians for control over the southern portion of Egypt. The Nubians were sent back to Nubia. After solidifying control over this area, Selmtik began to pick off the other regional rulers one at a time, essentially a piecemeal reassembly of the empire. Then, the Assyrians faced other threats, both internal and external, threats from revolts, and even a civil war for control over the throne. While the Assyrians were distracted, Samtik saw his opportunity and declared his independence sometime around 655 BC. But the Assyrians weren't that distracted, and Samtik knew an attack was likely. So, he formed alliances with other regional leaders, such as King Gagas of Lydia. Lydia was a kingdom in what is today western Turkey, and even included the legendary city of Troy. Semtik would also recruit professional soldiers from ancient Greece in the Anatolian region of Caria. Then, the Assyrian city of Nineveh was sacked, and with that, the Assyrians essentially ceased to exist as an empire. Samtik would use the disintegration of Assyria to formally establish Egyptian independence. After this, Egypt would closely ally itself with Greece, to the point that he encouraged many Greek settlers to establish colonies in Egypt and serve in the Egyptian army. One such Greek settlement was at Tapanhes, in the eastern delta, near where the Suez Canal runs today. And before moving along, there is one other story from his rule which, in a small way, relates to the couple of episodes I did a couple of years ago concerning the origin of language. The Greek historian Herodotus relayed what is probably best described as a myth about Samtik, a story he uncovered while traveling in Egypt. No doubt travels that, at least in a small way, were related to the connection between Greece and Egypt that Samtik sought to foster. The story is that Samtik desired to uncover the origin of language. He thought he could do this by conducting an experiment on two infant children. It's said that he gave these two children to a shepherd, with the explicit instructions that no one should speak to them. The shepherd was to care for them while listening to determine their first words. Samtik's theory was that the first word to be uttered would be in the root language of all people. Allegedly, one of the children cried out a sound similar enough to Bikos, saying the word while his arms were outstretched. The shepherd thought that the word was Phrygian, because that was close to the sound of the Phrygian word for bread. Thus, the pharaoh concluded that the Phrygians were an older people than the Egyptians, and that Phrygian was the original language of men. Obviously a good story. Unfortunately, other than Herodotus, there are no other sources for it. So, don't rely on it terribly much, for that reason, and many others. Samtik would reign for an impressive 54 years, until 610 BC and he was succeeded by his son, Nico II. Not long after taking the throne, Nico number two had to face repeated attacks from both the Sumerians and the Scythians. The Sumerians are believed to have been either Iranian or Thracian. The Scythians were Eurasian nomads, who were recorded as having inhabited large areas of the western and central Eurasian steppe 
from about the 9th century BC through the 4th century AD. Prior to attacking Egypt, both of these groups had pillaged the area of Syria and the Levant, and this was key, at least indirectly, in aiding the Babylonians in defeating the Assyrians. Because of having to defend itself on multiple fronts, the Assyrians were a mere shadow of their former selves, centered primarily in the region of what is today extreme southeastern Turkey and northern Syria. Despite their previous history, Nico II knew he needed an ally in the region and attempted to assist the Assyrians. In the spring of 609 BC, Nico himself led a large force to their aid. Riding out front, he led his forces. Well, that pronoun is a bit misleading. They weren't really primarily his, meaning native Egyptians. They were mostly hired help, mercenaries. Anyway, they traveled the coastal route to Syria, chiefly because he received support and defense from his navy, surely intimidating to a smaller, less organized military. And about this navy, Nico established it by recruiting displaced Ionian Greeks. And to the Egyptians, this was a bit revolutionary. Up until that point, the Egyptians never ventured far out to sea, and he would create what was essentially a three-sea navy. One in the Nile, which I know isn't a sea, but go with it. Another in the Mediterranean, and a third in the Red Sea. And allegedly, their exploits were not only military. More on that in a bit. Nico too ended up traveling through both Philistia and the Sharon Plain. The Philistines lived in the southwestern Levant. Of course, there will be more on them later. The Sharon Plain is an area between the Mediterranean Sea on its west and the Sumerian Hills on the east. It's essentially the location of the modern city of Tel Aviv, Israel. Nico would capture the city of Kadesh and press onward, eventually meeting up with the Assyrian king, Ashurabalit. As a combined force, they would cross the Euphrates and lay siege to the city of Haran. In doing so, Nico became the first pharaoh to cross the Euphrates since Thutmose III, some 800 years prior. But the force failed to capture Haran and beat a retreat back to northern Syria. After this, there are no records of Ashurabalit, as the Assyrians were finally vanquished by the Babylonians. Overall, Nico's attempt to aid the Assyrians was yet another historical case of too little, too late, as even when combined with the native Assyrian army, the force could not withstand the marauding Scythians and Sumerians, along with the juggernaut of the Babylonians, all of which eroded what had been Assyrian territory. But that's not the last we heard of Nico. While returning to Egypt, and as seen in the Old Testament, Nico had a run-in with the kingdom of Judah. As he was about to cross the ridge of hills near the Jezreel Valley, his scouts found the passage blocked by the Judean army. At this point in history, the Judean king, Josiah, was an ally of the Babylonians. The Judean army attempted to block his advance at Megiddo. Of course, the Egyptians were not going to be stopped, at least if they had their way. A brutal battle ensued, one that led to the death of Josiah. According to 2 Kings chapter 23, quoting, In his day, Pharaoh Necho of Egypt went up to the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates, 
King Josiah went to meet him, but when Pharaoh Necho met him at Megiddo, he killed him. His servants carried him dead in a chariot from Megiddo, brought him to Jerusalem, and buried him in his own tomb. The people of the land took Jehoazah, son of Josiah, anointed him, and made him king in the place of his father. End quote. Second Chronicles chapter 35 adds a few more details. Quoting again, King Necho of Egypt went up to fight at Carchemish on the Euphrates, and Josiah went out against him. But Necho sent envoys to him, saying, What have I done to you, king of Judah? I am not coming against you today, but against the house with which I am at war. And God has commanded me to hurry, cease opposing God, who is with me, so that he will not destroy you. But Josiah would not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to fight with him. He did not listen to the words of Necho from the mouth of God, but joined battle in the plain of Megiddo. The archers shot King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am badly wounded. So his servants took him out of the chariot and carried him in his second chariot and brought him to Jerusalem. There he died and was buried in the tombs of his ancestors. And there's something worth considering in here, and that's according to the passage, God used the polytheistic Nico to speak words to Josiah. I'm in no position to interpret the meaning of that. I'll just leave it up to the theologians. Also, before moving on, note that Megiddo is an ancient city in northern Israel's Jezreel Valley. And with that, back to Nico. After dispatching Josiah, Nico departed the region, but did leave behind a large number of troops. But before he made it back, Nico learned that the Judeans had selected Jehoazah to succeed his father, Josiah. According to 2 Chronicles chapter 36, the people of the land took Jehoazah, son of Josiah, and made him king to succeed his father in Jerusalem. Jehoazah was 23 years old when he began to reign. He reigned three months in Jerusalem. Then the king of Egypt deposed him in Jerusalem and laid on the land a tribute of 100 talents of silver and one talent of gold. The king of Egypt made his brother, Eliakim, king of Judah and Jerusalem, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But Necho took his brother Jehoazah and carried him to Egypt." So, Necho took the new king, after a short reign of three months, back to Egypt as prisoner, and made the prisoner's brother king. Well, really just a vassal. Jehoazah would never return from Egypt, presumably dying there as a prisoner. Necho would spearhead another campaign into the Levant the next year. This was precipitated when the Babylonian king, Nabopolassar, captured Kumak, and by doing so, cut off the Egyptian army based at Karshemesh from their homeland. Necho would lead a campaign that laid siege to Kumuk. Nabopolassar captured Kumuk, and by doing so, cut off the Egyptian army based at Karshemesh from their homeland. Necho would lead a campaign that laid siege to Kumuk for four months. After perhaps running out of supplies, the Babylonian troops in the city surrendered, they were all quickly executed. Then, the Babylonians, led by their king, sent more troops to the fight, encamping on the Euphrates. 
but the king fell ill and returned to Babylon in 605 BC. Necho seized the opportunity by attacking the leaderless Babylonians. Actually, there is the theory that they were being led by the crown prince Nebuchadnezzar, but that's mostly speculation. Either way, the Babylonians retreated. After the retreat, Nebuchadnezzar officially passed command of the army to his son, Nebuchadnezzar II, who led them to a pivotal victory over the Egyptians at Carchemish, chasing the retreating Egyptians as far as Hamath. Hamath is about as far west as you can go in Syria before falling into the Mediterranean. And with that, Nico's desire to restore the Egyptian empire in the Middle East to its new kingdom prowess, well, that desire died. The Babylonians in 601 BC would attack Egypt at its eastern border, but Nico managed to turn them back. Perhaps sensing an opportunity and seeking a bit of revenge, he would chase them as far as Gaza. But that was it. Instead of continuing his military campaigns, he refocused his attention on developing diplomatic alliances, making allies out of the Greeks and Carians. But Nico number two wasn't just known for his military campaigns in Western Asia. Allegedly, at least according to Herodotus, who heard this story via oral tradition, Nico sent an expedition of Phoenicians to circumnavigate the African continent. They are said to have sailed from the Red Sea around the southern tip of Africa to the mouth of the Nile. The expedition is thought to have occurred sometime between 610 and 594 BC and took three years to complete, which, if true, was an amazing feat of exploration. They would have had to sail all the way around the Cape of Good Hope, well into the southern hemisphere, and far enough south that they would have easily encountered penguins. Now, Herodotus didn't believe the tale, and cast all sorts of geographic dispersions on it, but the general belief at the time was that the southern tip of Africa connected to some part of Asia, so it would have been impossible to sail around the continent. But, given that the story debunked a common belief, does yield it some credibility. And that wasn't his only revolutionary idea. While in the midst of his Syrian campaign, he started to construct a navigable channel from the Nile to the Red Sea. Unfortunately, it was never completed, but it's thought had been the earliest attempt to do what would some 2,500 years later become the Suez Canal. Nico II died in 595 BC and was succeeded by his son, Samtik II, who would rule for only six years. Internally, Samtik would have many temples and monuments built, including obelisks that had been transported as far as Rome. There is a theory, and it's a bit disputed, that Samtik removed his predecessor and father's name from almost all of his father's monuments. If true, the reasons for his actions are unknown. But that's not what this pharaoh is truly remembered for. Samtik would turn his military attention in the opposite direction from his father, towards the south, Nubia. According to Egyptian monuments, in his third year, he would lead his troops to a sizable victory over Cush. And this was their first victory over their former vassals, turned rulers, turned independent kingdom in about 60 years. So why now? 
while a Kushite king, Alamani, was showing signs of strengthening the kingdom. Selmtik wasn't going to take any chances and made a preemptive strike just to ensure the Nubians had no territorial desires. The Egyptian army would make it as far as Nubia's capital, Napata, where they looted its temples and destroyed the royal Kushite monuments. These included many from the 25th dynasty, and on those they continued the long-standing Egyptian tradition of carving out the names of leaders who had fallen out of favor. Before it was all over, they essentially destroyed the capital, taking over 4,000 prisoners. From that point forward, the Kushites gave up any desire to regain Egypt. They even moved their capital further south, making another defeat to the Egyptians a bit more difficult. In 591 BC, Samtik II sent troops back to the Levant with instructions, quoting, to foment a general Levitine revolt against the Babylonians, end quote. Here they would encounter Zedekiah, the king of Judah. A few years earlier, Zedekiah was made king by the Babylonian ruler, King Nebuchadnezzar II. Not much would come from this encounter, at least not yet. What did happen would transpire during the reign of Semtik's successor, Apris. But you'll have to join me next week to learn that history. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.